This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. How is the information war treating you at this point? Oh, day to day, you know, some days like a used diaper, some days just fine. But uh, I mean, it's it's a ever changing landscape that we're all navigating right now. So it's a never, never a dull moment. What is your your background? Yeah, I mean, I grew up in a tiny town in upstate New York, about an hour south of Rochester, you know, way, way away from New York City and anything exciting like that. I moved to Hollywood uh, when I just turned 18, right out of high school, went to a music school there, and then spent the next few years after that, like working terrible jobs, playing in different bands, trying to make things happen, and sort of by accident fell into playing punk rock uh, with a band called Face to Face. Um, I had a friend who was tour managing them and they were looking for a drummer and he, you know, long story short, got me an audition and ended up working out to me growing up playing like hard rock, heavy metal, their stuff wasn't any different. It was like, okay, this is aggressive, but I just play it with one foot instead of two. Right. You know, I just had to make that adjustment. Um, and from there it just kind of escalated through other bands, you know, from face to face and to saves the day also worked with the alkaline trio and then, um, you know, found my way into playing for the offspring. And then even while I was doing the offspring, filling in on tours with, you know, my chemical romance and Devo and, um, you know, so it was just, you know, music's a weird thing. Once you get started on it, you know, one thing leads to another thing leads to another thing. And you, you kind of never know how that's going to shake out or, or where it's going to come from. But, you know, luckily for me, it just kind of kept rolling in the right direction of of staying busy to you know to the point of oh i'm making a living playing the drums okay cool you know i'm making records i'm i'm seeing the world um so it was a really you know quite a journey from a, a tiny town of about a thousand people to you know playing for a hundred thousand people at a giant festival you know it was a kind of surreal and in, in those days on tour where a lot of like those shows are really nerve wracking and you're like, Oh my God, I'm playing for so many people. But then you have to take a minute and go, no, take it in. You're playing in front of this ocean of people like this should be enjoyable. Like don't, don't get over anxious about it. Make sure that you're taking a moment to take it in. Cause you know, you're, it's, it's happened so fast. And then you're like, Oh wow, that, that happened. And now you're back in your hotel room and alone. And you're just kind of like, what just happened? I was just playing for a hundred thousand people. Now I'm all by myself, you know? So it's, it's a lot of, a lot of give and take in this business of, you know, the excitement of being on stage and then the monotony of filling those hours until the next time that you're on stage. And, you know, it can go in a positive direction or a negative direction. It can be, you know, self-destructive, like it, it, you know, there's a reason a lot of people have a hard time on tour. You know, I, nobody's excessively drinking, you know, because it's a big fun party. A lot of times it's you're just coping. You're like, well, I'm away from my family for the next five weeks. I'm on a completely different time schedule where, you know, they're asleep when I'm awake. And, you know, so if you don't find those reasons to you know, stay positive while you're out there, you can really get enveloped in, by the negative really fast. Yeah, you were talking about how you sort of fell into punk rock. Now, that's quite interesting. Yeah. Were, you, were you not really into the scene? No, I didn't know anything about it. 
Um, I mean, I knew it, that it, I was familiar that it existed, but I was very heavy metal, double bass drumming, you know, uh, that was my thing that I was into. But, you know, at, at the time when I got out of music school, you know, trying to get bands going like that at that time was tough because it wasn't a big, a big sound that was happening in the early 90s. So it was in more like doing some grunge stuff and some other rock stuff, but I'd never done punk rock because I just, where I grew up, I wasn't exposed to it. It was such a small town. All you had was FM radio that you could pick up from, you know, the bigger city an hour away and MTV, which was a lot of, you know, hair metal and, and stuff like that. So that's what I was exposed to. So that's what I learned how to play and, and grew up listening to. So when the punk rock thing came along, even face to face, you know, when my friend called and said, Hey, you're, you're going to audition for these guys when they get off this tour. And I was like, I don't know anything about punk rock. It's just like, they were auditioning drummers at the studio where I worked. Like I knew they were looking for a drummer, but it didn't seem like my gig. And he's like, no, you don't understand. They're, they're going to make a weird record. They're, they want to make a rock record. They don't want to just be a punk rock band. They're going to try something different. So they need somebody with more of a rock background. So then I was like, okay, well that might be interesting. So, you know, they came back from their tour and I, I had no money. I was just a kid parking cars and scrubbing toilets. Right. So I just went into their room one night before I went home and got into their merch box, stole one of their live CDs, figuring like, well, this will give me a good cross section of what the band sounds like. And, uh, so I just learned that whole record so that I could understand, you know, what the band was. I know they were giving everybody the same two songs to learn. And then I sat there for a week while they, you know, six hours a day, listen to all these drummers come in and play the same two songs. And I was just like, oh my God. So, but you know, and you would hear, it was like one fast song and one slow song. And so usually one guy could really do the fast stuff, but the whole, the slow stuff was, the timing was bad or vice versa. Like they really held it down on the groove stuff, but the speed, they didn't have it. Right. So I get in there at the end of the week and, and they're like, exasperated and looking like oh great now the kid that parks the cars wants to play cool cool here we are but and i'm just like all right well i've been sitting here listening to you guys play these same two songs all week do you want to play something else and they were like what else do you know and i was like i know your whole live record and so then they just busted into songs off of that and for me it was you know kind of a on the spot lesson of being prepared too of like when you go into a audition and they say learn these two songs if that's all you learn, what happens when they go, what else do you know? And then you can't go anywhere. So to me, it was like, well, they're going to be sick of this. I'll learn more songs. Now we can play something that's more fun, you know, works to my advantage too. Now they're looking at me like, oh, wow, this guy, now we're having fun because we're not sick of these two songs going through the same motion. So it was, you know, it was a good fit personally and, and musically. And, you know, I had a crash course in, in punk rock through them and learned so much from playing with them. <laughs> Um, it was, uh, it was quite an experience. Yeah. I'm, I'm laughing though, because your entire story in itself is punk rock because punk rock is not about following rules. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm stealing shit and playing songs off the list. And yeah, no, we're, that's true. I, I looked at it that way. It was just out of necessity at the time, but yeah. Punk rock is an attitude. It's not just about the music. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you, you got to bring your aggression and your energy. And so I've been playing heavy metal and, you know, hitting the snare drum like a, you know, 300 pound gorilla for years. So it was like, oh, I can do this at this speed. It's okay. So it's like, you know, you bring that gravity to it, even if you're playing at those tempos. And I, I, one of the best compliments I ever got was the, the singer from Face to Face, Trevor. 
he said when he found out that I had gone to this particular music school in Hollywood, he's like, I never would have guessed that you went there because all of those guys sound the same. And I was like, well, that's cool. I'm glad that I went through there and got got what I got out of it, but came out with my soul intact that I still had what made me, you know, special or particular to that instrument instead of just cookie cutter coming out mm. sounding like everybody else. So. Uh, well, I mean, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't John Otto go to, or didn't he study jazz or something? I think so. I, he may have, I don't know if he wasn't there at the same time as me. So if he went to the same school as I did, I'm, I'm not sure, but yeah, I mean, all of us, I had to study jazz stuff and Latin stuff and, you know, I wasn't particularly good at it, but I had to study it and it, and it goes along, but that that's what builds you as a, as a player. It's like, well, okay, let me at least be exposed to this style of music that I don't know anything about. And, you know, when I might feel like I'm going to fall off of my drum stool playing jazz at the time, but then it's like, oh, then you get more comfortable and, and you get a feel going on. So to me, to be at that school and to be exposed to not just those teachers, but the other students there that were just shredders, like all these guys came in from Sweden who were just absolute shredders, just barn burners. And they were so good and like reading sight reading like had everything down they were just partying all the time like i would never see them in class and then they would show up and just sight read their tests and go back to partying but it was just like that level of proficiency there and i'm i'm coming from a tiny town and like pretty you know socially anxious and and awkward and weird so it was neat to be surrounded by so much talent and then it pushes you to step up your game like i i made huge strides being in that school you know from where i started to, to where i was when i graduated and it still to this day really appreciate that experience um i suppose i should ask you what drum set do you play on uh i am with tama drums um and i have a walnut birch kit right now um that i'm really really fond of it's just super the drums are super punchy. They tune up really easily. Like I, I just keep it set up in my studio here because I track drums for people all the time remotely. And the kit just sounds brilliant all, all the time. Like I don't I don't have any troubles. Like a lot of times you'll get that one drum that you're like, God, oh, I spent so long tuning this. These things tune right up and they're they're just good to go. So I, I love this kit. I don't know that I'll ever need another drum set in my lifetime because this these drums are so great. What are some of your influences? Man, my influences growing up, like I said, were straight up hair metal, heavy metal, right? So I loved everything from Motley Crue, Judas Priest, um, you know, bands like that. But I really loved kind of bands that leaned a little more prog rock, like Queensryche. My favorite drummer was Scott Rockenfield from Queensryche. And um, so I, I liked when there was something a little more interesting going on than the straight up party metal, you know, those guys had something to say. I mean, their Operation Mindcrime record is basically screaming against fascism in like 1987. Like it was, it was intense. You know, I listen to that record now and I'm like, wow, they were already calling shit out, you know, 35 years ago of what we're still struggling and dealing with every day. So I love stuff like that where it had a little more meat on the bones to dig into. But yeah, drumming wise, I loved, you know, Tommy Lee, from Motley Crue, Tommy Aldridge, who played with, you know, White Snake or Ozzy or all those people. Um, but yeah, Scott Rockenfield. Uh, my favorite drummer of all time was a, a guy from my hometown, uh, Mick Palmasano. I ended up moving with him to California. We went to school together. And he still to this day is my favorite drummer, the most creative person I've ever seen, the most intense. 
and like hated anything, anything boring. So was always pushing the envelope of what can I put in the song to make it interesting. And I always still think, you know, if I'm recording for somebody here, I'm like, well, I got to find, I got to find what, what would Mick do here? He would have found some little flourish here to really step this up and take it out of the ordinary and, and keep it from being boring. So that was a huge influence on me. And then, you know, through music school, um, meeting and seeing players like Ray Luzier, who's now with Korn, but, you know, spent years playing with David Lee Roth and all, all these other people. And, uh, you know, so meeting Ray was a big deal for me because he really kind of opened my eyes to how you could play with conviction. Like every note mattered. Everything that he played was just, it hit you. And so I really connected with him. We ended up actually being roommates um, for three or four years after I got out of school. Um, so, you know, throughout the, the mid nineties, you know, when all these bands offspring and corn were coming out, we were roommates together and that we ended up in those bands, you know, 20, 25 years later was kind of funny. When people hear a song, like let's say Bon Jovi, it's always either the vocalist or the guitarist. Yeah. But what people don't realize is, you know, the drummer is really, really critical. Drummer is super critical. And if you're, I, I like to say, if the drummer is doing your job right, you won't even notice it. Because for me, the drums don't ever need to be the lead instrument. They, they don't need to be out front being obnoxious and taking up a lot of space, but they need to make it feel right. You're setting the tone of the song. You're setting the tempo of the song. You're, you're setting the intention of the song and working along with the bass player. You know, if you've got a great rhythm section, um, everything else is lifted up because of that you take a band like muse which i think has the best modern rhythm section of anyone um those that drummer and bass player work together like clockwork and they elevate every song in a way you know they find something in the second verse that they're going to tweak a little bit to lift it up like constantly and that lets that singer just wail over the top of everything um so if you can find that that's gold i mean that's that's magic but um yeah, the drums are are setting the tone. They're setting the intention. They're they're laying the groundwork that hopefully the vocalist is comfortable with. You know, a lot of singers that are you know singer singers like Adele or Whitney Houston or that Mariah Carey, that kind of thing. Like they want a, a drummer that knows where they like it to sit. If it's ahead of the beat, if it's behind the beat, they don't want to have to think about it. You know, they they just want to have that consistency and that reliability back there. And so I, I think if you're if you're a drummer and you're and you're doing that, you're providing that because we're a support position. I mean, yeah, there's there's drummers that are out front. I mean Travis Barker is out front. That's awesome. Works great for his band. Tommy Lee was out front. That was awesome. That was great for his band. Like, you know, on stage, I'm I tend to be a bit of a show, big swinging and whatever, and that's cool. But you you also have to temper that with how is the show flowing? How how much space do I need between songs? What does this person need for their cue in this next song? Oh, this person usually struggles with that part. What can I do to make them more comfortable to you know to keep things going? So people kind of don't realize that it's like if you're the drummer. And especially nowadays where everything is, you know, playing to click tracks and synced up with lights and video screens and stuff, you are running the whole show. Like you are spacing out how the show feels, like how much time does he need to switch guitars before I start the next song? How much space does he need to get a sip of water? Does it look like he, the singer is struggling tonight? Let me give a little more time in between songs to catch their breath. Like you, you have to be aware 
of what everybody on stage is needing and doing if you're doing your job right to me. And, you know, I know a lot of guys are just like, I play the drums and, uh, you know, somebody else is the musical director. But to me, it doesn't doesn't make for someone else to be running the show, but the drummer, because you're going to you have the feel of the flow and how how this is going. How's the audience going? Are they are they going off tonight? Let's give them more time to cheer. Like you never want to cut off somebody's cheer at the end of a song. Right. But you don't want dead air. So you got to you got to find that space of like what feels comfortable to transition into the next song. And so there, there's a lot of things to think about and, but yeah, but everyone loves the singer and the guitar player. So that's cool too. <laughs> the reason why I brought that up is because I, I think I noticed the drummer for the first time, I suppose in the late nineties, you know, part of that MTV generation, they didn't have noticeable drummers until I saw Blink-182. That yeah. was when I first noticed the importance of the drummer. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Travis lifted that band up. I mean, they they had their, their <laughs> they original drummer and stuff. <laughs> I I I would never say that. I I just think that Travis, being such a showman and such a phenomenal drummer, too, really musically and and performance wise, really elevated that band to a, a a different level that I don't I don't think they would have gotten. Like the songs were still great. Like it was super catchy stuff. But he he added another element that's kind of intangible. You know, like that was, that was solid gold that they lucked into him. I think I might have also yeah. noticed uh, Limbiscuit at the same time. I mean, they were they were all part of that same era. Yeah, the new metal stuff was exciting because mm. you're like, well, these guitars are so heavy, and you know the the beats are, you know, you're just you can't stop bopping yeah. your head, you know. And then when they're playing live, and you see the ocean of people doing the pogo, like that's impressive. Like it's it's exciting, and you get swept up in it. I I love that era of music. Obviously, it's 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 near and dear to my heart. Um, but yeah, that through a lot of stuff, the drummer is usually in the background, or you wouldn't recognize mm. them. I mean, I. I used to get a kick out of it because, you know, and, you know, touring with face to face and saves the day and stuff like I'm not the focal point of any band. But, you know, you come out of the back of the club and you're headed to the bus and people stop you and go, hey, 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 when is anybody from the band going to come out? <laughs> and you just kind of <laughs> laugh and go, go, well, I don't know. You know, I think they're they're still in there, but it, it sounds like you're a big fan and you'll know them when you see them. And then you kind of go on your way. So that that was fun for me. And I, I I don't envy, you know, the singer or the band or whatever that comes out of the club and gets mobbed by 100 people. You know, I, I kind of like the the anonymity of the drummer. Um, mm. And I, I think most most drummers feel that way. You can tell when there's a drummer that really is lighting their hair on fire. And it's like, OK, you would rather be the singer then go go be the singer, you know. But in, in some bands, that, that stuff works. and some bands, it's too much. So you kind of got to know your gig. Um, but, you know, somebody, no, not all, like, you know, uh, the Jay Weinberg and Slipknot, like putting on a crazy show appropriate for that band. You know, Ray Luzier with corn flipping his sticks and, you know, making crazy faces, perfectly appropriate for that band. So, you know, gig by gig, you know, depends on how much, how much you can stick your face out there and how much you should kind of hang back. Well, I mentioned the nineties. So I suppose the segue into your offspring story would be appropriate right now. So be, let me premise that by saying that the very first CD that I ever bought was smash. Nice. Yeah. I mean, you and 15 million other people still the <laughs> biggest, 
biggest selling indie record of all time. It'll, it will never be beaten. It, that, that record will stand, you know, mm. forever. And, you know, that's, that's huge, you know, for a band to, to come out and be that grassroots. I mean, I was living with Ray Luzier. I remember when that song came out and we were like, whoa, you know, you heard that song and you heard corn song, like music was changing really rapidly at that time. But yeah, that album smash, that's special for a lot of people. I mean, we did shows a lot over the years where we would play that, that record from front to back. And those were always some of the best shows because people love even the songs that weren't on the radio. People love that record because it was just such a, a huge a, like cultural thing at the time. Like everybody had that album. So everybody knows all those songs. So those were really, really fun shows to go playing that record all the time. I had left uh, Saves the Day in spring of 2007 and just was really, really dejected about music in general. Like I, I uh, there was a lot of diff difficult personality stuff with that band and I loved the music and really struggled and tried to to keep things going with that but it just got to the point where the drama of the personalities was outweighing the enjoyment of the music and at that point it's just like okay well I'm going to remove myself from the situation because it's not fun anymore and I'm I'm heading to a dark place and I don't want to be there. And so when I left that band, I was really sick of music. I was sick of punk rock, especially. I didn't want anything to do with it. Um, and I was just like not going to play music anymore. And my wife was looking at me like, just take a breath, like hang back for a minute. And so, you know, there was a, a really well-known metal band at the time that came, I got wind of was looking for a drummer. And I was like, oh, yeah, well, I'll, I'll play metal. I always loved metal. Let me get back in the metal band. Maybe that'll be better than punk rock. And then my best friend, who's guitar tech to the stars, knows everybody, called me and he said, I heard you're looking at that gig. Absolutely not. You're, he's like, you just got out of what you think is crazy town. That's like an entire crazy country. Like, do not get involved in that, you know, avoid at all costs. So that kind of went away. And I was like, all right, well, you know, I, I still don't know what I want to do. And then I get a phone call. And it's like, hey, Offspring's looking for a drummer. They, you know, their management wants to talk to you. And I was like, yeah, I don't want to play punk rock anymore. I'm not interested. Let it go. And like a month later, some from a different angle, somebody else hit me up and said, hey, Offspring, looking for a drummer. Your name keeps coming up. You know, you should check it out. And I was like, I don't want to play punk rock. I'm so sick of it. Um, you know, I'm not interested. And then another month goes by. And then from another source comes around again. And my wife is like, you know, this keeps coming up. And, you know, gave me some of the best advice I've ever got in my life. She's like, why don't you go down and see how it feels? Like, go go get the job and then decide if you want it or not. You can always turn it down, but just go go check it out. So so I did. It was like it was one of those things. Here's your two songs. There's a fast song and a slow song. Come down and you're going to audition. So I go down and the first audition was just playing along to the two songs, like an album track for their manager. So that was awkward. Which Which two songs? And then... It was uh, All I Want and Gotta Get Away. So they wanted oh, something fast. Songs. And yeah, so it's like, okay, cool. Like it was like face to face, like, oh, one fast song, one slow song. Cool. Let's see what you can do. And it was a cattle call, you know, which is a musical term for basically an open call. Like we're not, we're not only selectively auditioning people. It's like we're putting out feelers everywhere. We're going to see a lot of people. So there was, you know, 10 other people there in the waiting room at this rehearsal place waiting to play their two songs, right? And uh, so I guess that went well enough that I get a call from the manager going, you know, can you come back next week, um, play those two songs, the band's going to be there. So I'm like, all right. So I go 
back down the next week, play the same two songs, meet the band. I was like, okay, cool. That felt good. I didn't, I didn't think I played particularly well. I think I really messed up a fill and got to get away. Like one of my sticks broke or something. And I saw, so I was like, ah, oh, well, I kind of blew that, whatever. And then, you know, get a, get a call. Hey, next week, can you come down? But to learn these other four songs. So now we're adding different feels. So like one of them was playing along to the, you'll hit that play along to the click track. One was, you know, kids aren't all right. Something a little peppier. And I forget what the other two are like staring at the sun or something. Um, and so you go back down and now you're playing those four songs, but now I'm hearing other drummers playing, going in before me playing the first two songs. So I'm like, Oh wow. They're really casting a wide net. Like I'm moving farther along in the audition process, but they're still bringing other people in. So I'm like, all right, that's cool. They're leaving no stone unturned. You know, that's fine. So then after third audition, then, um, I got called like, Hey, come back down next week. You know, the singer just wants to hang out, play some songs with you, just him and, and just talk to you and get to know you. And so that was kind of my fourth audition. And after that, then I got the call like, Hey, they want you to join the band. And at this point I was like, all right, these guys seem really cool. These three have been together for, you know, at, I mean, 2007 at this point, they were like, had already been together over 20 years. So I'm like, there must be something special going on here. These three guys still get along, want to play music together, you know, need a drummer. So I, I you know, I took the gig and you just, you just kind of slide into that world of, you know, like, well, let's, let's see how this goes. And I'd never been in a position before, like every other band that I've ever been in, it was like, cool, you're the drummer in the band. Now you're in the band now. So this was the first time that I had had a a, a gig that was more of a job that's like cool well you're hired and now here's your here's your salary and you're on call for you know whatever we need from you you're not technically a member of the band but for all intents and purposes it will appear that way you're going to be in all the photos and the videos and this and that and that's not not an unusual arrangement but i had just never never been in a situation like that before but i mean for from then on for you know the next 14 years we had a great run we had great times you know traveled the world, played huge shows, you know, um, had, had a really good time. And then just kind of head first crashed into the summer of 2021 when, you know, everyone was losing their minds over COVID and the vaccine mandates cropped up. And that just kind of very quickly deteriorated from, you know, we just put a record out. I was just out filming music videos, like everything's cool. Everybody's fine. And then just get a really like, life altering phone call from their manager that was just awful. Like it was just abusive and insanely unnecessarily, uh, just, just shitty for lack of a better term. And very, you know, long story short was just made very clear to me that, you know, my continued involvement to the band was going to require that I get the COVID vaccine. And I, you know, I tried to express like, Hey, I've, I've been dealing with my doctor. I got a medical background. Didn't matter. Didn't want to hear about it. Not going to talk about it. You know, screaming, belittling, like shitty. Like I was shaking when I get off this phone call and I'm going to my wife and I'm like, I don't know what's going on here, but this is, this is, this is bad. And so I write to the band guys and I'm like, Hey, you know, I don't, I've never had a phone call like this in my life from anyone. Like this was crazy. I mean, I've been here 14 years. Like I don't understand this approach coming at me this aggressively and you know they backed him up like now this is what we got to do um and so you know after that if, like all communication just kind of ceased and 
you know, a few days later, you know, I found out basically that I was replaced from my Southwest app, my flight app, that my flight to rehearsal was canceled. And then right after that, my access to the work, the band working calendar was revoked. So I'm like, not hearing from anybody, but now I'm just completely cut off and, and left out. So it, it sucked. It was like overnight, you know, myself and my family, like, you know, these people that we're, we're all supposed to be family and stuff. We were just gone. Like it, it felt like being erased. And, and we sat with that for, you know, almost a month. It was just like, well, you know, what do we do here? And then it just kind of got to the point where it's like, well, this isn't right. And, you know, we need to, we need to say something. And, and so when I put out the statement in August of 21 of what happened for me, it was like threefold. Number one, I needed to let people know I needed work. Like I wasn't in this band anymore, you know? And so I was just trying to let people know. Number two, they had shows coming up that, you know, they had a show in Nashville where I live coming up that I knew I was not going to be at. And I've got people hitting me up for tickets to the show. And I'm like, God, I got to start telling people. So then it's like, all right, well, I need to let people know. Number one, I need work. Number two, I'm not in the band anymore. So, and I don't want to have this conversation 500 times. So we wrote a really thoughtful, what I think was a very thoughtful, respectful, like, hey, here's why you won't be seeing me at these shows anymore. I don't wish any, I don't have any negative feelings for anybody. This is just where I'm at. And on top of that, I don't think that anybody should be forced to take this thing. I think it's being forced on everyone from you're getting pressure from government or employers or uh, peer pressure from social pressure of everyone. Like, what do you mean you're not going to get it? Oh my God. So, you know, put out this statement and did not expect that it was going to be like a firestorm of, you know, I thought it was just like, Hey, I'll let the fans know why I'm not going to be there. I'll let all the people in my friend group know, you know, don't ask for tickets. I won't be there. And also, Hey, I need some work. Like, you know, we already hadn't, no, no musician had worked for a year and a half. And all of a sudden it was like, Oh, okay. Now I have no work coming up. So I've, I've got to figure out a new way forward. And it just overnight kind of went crazy. Like the story got picked up everywhere. And, you know, I got, I got hit up from, I mean, almost every anchor on Fox news reached out to me. Tons of anchors on CNN reached out to me. One of the producers on CNN was like, hounding us like got my phone number got my wife's phone number like hounding us hounding and it just felt really weird and it was like well now this feels like it's all i was trying to do was talk about my experience and now this feels like it's going to be taken away from that and twisted into it co-opted into some form of agenda of whatever somebody wants so we you know i turned all of that down because i wasn't trying to get attention for this i wasn't trying to be some kind of lightning rod for this thing. I just wanted to say, I'm not going to be there anymore. I'm not taking this. And, you know, for me, the fact that I had a, a medical issue that precluded me from taking it was no different from somebody just saying, I just don't want to, I don't know enough about this. And that's what we wanted mm -hmm. to make clear. And my statement is like, yeah, for me, it's medical, but regardless of that, nobody should have to do something like we all have our own bodily autonomy. And I, mm. I think no is a complete sentence, you know, especially with something brand new like this, that's being rolled out. And, you know, there was nobody in the trials that, that looked like me. There was nobody with autoimmune conditions in the trials. It was all healthy people. So it was like, well, I'm not going to get any real information. 
on somebody with my condition taking this until we see some real world results. So I was just like, well, right now that just doesn't make any sense for me to take this. It's not safe and I'm not, not going to do it. And so while I kind of expected, you know, flamethrowers, when I put this statement out, it was surprising and wonderful how much support we actually got. Like people were reaching out to me uh, from all over the world. Like my Instagram went nuts and everybody's writing and going, hey, I, I thought I was the only person that felt like this. Or, oh man, I'm, I'm butting up against this with my job or I already lost my job. Or my friend group is crushing me to get this thing and it just doesn't feel right for me. And, you know, we just hearing from all these people that finally thought, oh, I, I feel seen here, like somebody else feels this way. Because I think anybody who didn't want to get this or had questions about it, I mean, you weren't even able to question it. Yeah. It's like, I have questions. And it's like, no, how dare you? And, it, you know, it, it really perked my ears up because it's like, well, if I'm not allowed to even ask questions about this, that, that seems crazy. Like, this is very new. It was developed very fast. And anyone saying, we can't discuss it, like, it, you know, it, it, it just felt wrong. And uh, so, you know, for me and, and my family, that was that was the right choice for us. And and while it was a really dark time, like for me personally, you know, I mean, it was like, it, you know, I was like, well, my career is over. Like everything I've spent my whole life on is is going to be over. Like no one's going to work with me. I'm going to be blacklisted. And it wasn't that at all. Thankfully, it was, you know, obviously everything was going to look different, but you know, found such a new community of people um, who were uh, supportive and wanted to help. And, and, uh, and, you know, so people started hiring me like, Hey, you have your own studio. Can you record drums on this for me? Can you? And so, you know, that's a lot of what I do now is I, I have my studio here at home and I track drums for anybody reach out to me on my website and hit me up, you know, we'll work something out. It's, you know, I enjoy it. I found a new way to be creative again. And I, you know, I found my way back to enjoying the drums again, which, you know, wasn't anyone's fault that I wasn't enjoying it. But it's just when you're, when you're in a monotonous situation, you know, you're playing the same show a lot, especially once, once your show is synced up with lights and, and things like that, like it tends to not change a lot. So you're playing the same songs every night and, and you, you got to find a way to, keep that interesting and and for me when i was on tour it's twofold because you're away from your family and it's hard and you're playing the same show every night and that's hard because now you're like well how do i how do i get myself worked up for the show tonight when it's going to be the same as last night and the night before and you have to find a way forward and for me it was connecting with the fans like you know for everyone that comes to that show I might be playing that song for the thousandth time, but they're seeing it for the first time. So I have a responsibility to make sure that I am giving them a performance that they deserve. Like they they may have been waiting all year to see that show. They may have saved up all month to buy that ticket. Like, you know, you, you show up for the people that are there. Like that's your job, you know, no matter how hard it is. And, you know, even, even finding ways to, like I said earlier, sometimes you can get swept away in the negativity of of your day traveling all the time. But so I would do things like if we were doing a long tour, I would get down to the venue early every day and like hide a pair of drumsticks in the venue somewhere and take a picture of it and, you know, the little clue and put it on my Instagram and kind of interact with the fans that way. And it was fun to kind of watch, you know, when the doors opened or the venue opened every night and people would run in and you'd see them trying to run and try to find the sticks and 
it was really cool to interact with people that way. And, you know, so you're always trying to find a way to, to connect with the fans um, because sometimes that keeps you going as well. But, you know, that that's kind of what it's all about. We're making music, we're connecting with people and there, there should be that back and forth. Um, so, so for me, the connecting with the fans was always what kind of kept me going. But I think your story uh, tugged at a lot of heartstrings um, because let's not forget, uh, what's his name? Taylor Hawkins. And, yeah. And, and the big controversy around that. Yeah. I mean, that that's its own thing. Like, mm. I, I don't know what, look, I, I don't know what happened to Taylor. Mm. And by all accounts, you know, I, he was a great drummer and an even greater person, like beloved by everybody in the whole industry. And that's like almost an impossible feat to accomplish. So I, I, you know, I don't have much more to say on that. Like mm. he, he can't speak for himself here and, and he certainly wouldn't appoint me to speak for him. But, um, you know, I, I think a lot of, uh, a lot of stories, you know, come up and go and get and get people talking about certain issues and, and back and forth and whatever. But, uh, um, you know, so, yeah, I, d I don't know what to say on that. No, I, what I'm what I'm saying is that I think that's probably one of the vectors towards why so so many people came out in support of you, because, uh, you know, you you made a, a call that was more important than than your job. And many yeah, people around sure. and many people around the world did that also. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, I've heard from so many people. And for me, it was it was bigger than a job. Like I've got two daughters. And mm. so it's kind of like, well, if I'm not showing them how to stand up, how standing up for myself in a place, and you know, if I'm compromising my beliefs or my health or what I think is safe for me for an opportunity, then I'm showing them that that it's okay to do that later. Like I, I need them to know later in life when they're hit with some adversity like this, I'd, I'd rather that they remember like, no, I don't have to compromise myself here. You know, my dad didn't compromise himself there and it cost him a lot. It cost my family a lot, but it was the right thing to do. Like, you know, I'm, I'm in this fight for not just me and in, in this current moment, but for the next generation and the one after that i'm fighting for my kids and your kids and everybody else's kids because uh, you know all the rights that we give up now they're not going to have the choice to have them later so if, if we're not fighting right now for for these rights our kids are not going to have the same options later on and so to me that that was the most important thing was like all right cool i'm obviously nuking my career here at the time that was what i thought and you know we're going to lose a lot of people here, which we definitely did. But the the community that showed up for us, the community that lifted me and my family up, it has just been phenomenal. And still to this day, every day we'll get a message from somebody new that's like, hey, just saw your story now and, you know, have something to say about it. And it's sweet. And yeah, there's still people that show up to throw shit at you or just, you know, have something negative to say, because I think everybody's really everyone's real tough online, but I, I think that's another big issue in our society right now is we all spend so much time online, myself included, that, you know, if I'm on, on 
the internet too much, I start to feel hopeless and feel like everything's divided. I get out in the world and I talk to a real person and you find out that's not the case. Like face to face, we are, we have so much more in common than what we're made to believe online. Like everything is so divided. And I, I, I just want, I always want to try to find common ground with people uh, about anything. Like I don't need anyone to agree with me on everything to stay in my life. I wouldn't want that. Like, and thankfully, you know, some of the people that are closest to me in the world who don't feel anywhere near how I feel about any of this stuff, we are fine because that's not the, the entirety of who we are or our relationships. And so for me, if, if we're cutting people out of our lives because they don't agree with us on, on everything, we're, we're losing, we're losing out on, on learning. Like, I'm not going to learn anything if I'm just surrounded by people that feel the same as me. Like, I, I don't mind having my ideas challenged. Like my problem is if, if you don't like an idea, don't attack the person who has the idea, like fight back with a better argument, like be, be more intelligent than that because otherwise we're just all screaming at each other. And meanwhile, while we're distracted screaming at each other, the people who are actually in charge of things are, you know, not a, they're not worried about our best interest. They're just happy that we're distracted. So what you're saying to me, Pete, is that you may be dumb, but you're not a dweeb. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, you know, that, that was another fun, uh, right. another fun stigma was like, <laughs> there you go. You got it ready. No, that was another, another fun slap that people gave was like, Oh, cool. The drummer's going to give medical advice. I'm not giving medical advice. I never told anyone what to do. I would never tell anybody what to do. We all need to figure it out for ourselves. And that was my point. But when you can't argue the point with a better argument, then you come back and go, mm. Oh, this dumbass is in a band with someone with a PhD and thinks he knows better. Never said I thought I knew better. Mm. I just said what, what felt right for me and felt safe for me and, and did what was best for me. Everything for me is even when I'm talking about this, which I didn't for a long time, like, cause I didn't want to come out when I was upset or angry about it. Like, you know, it's been a long time to finally start talking about what happened. But, um, for me, it's, it's just, uh, you know, I'm trying to, trying to put this the right way, but anyway, yeah, it's, I'm not here to give anybody advice on what to do. I think everyone should be allowed the opportunity to speak for themselves and think for themselves and do what's right. And when we're told that we're not allowed to question or, or, you know, take a stance against something or you'll be, you know, marginalized or erased or whatever, you know, that that's where I take issue. That's, that's what gets me uh, upset. I grew up with offspring. They are one of my favorite bands of all time. I loved watching them live. You, you weren't part of the band yet. Uh, so I'm not going to talk smack about them, but what I will say is this whole story is not punk rock. Yeah. I mean, it, it's disappointing, but I, I, and I am disappointed. I'm still disappointed in what happened. You know, I, I, the only reason I'm not still there doing my job in that band is this issue. Like, you know, I, for 14 years, I never missed a day of work. I never missed a day in the studio and photo shoot. I never missed a show because I was sick. Like if I'm throwing up all day, I stop for an hour, go play my show, go back to throwing up. Like, you know, the only reason I'm not there is, is this issue. And that that's upsetting because I think, 
everyone got stirred up into this state of fear, especially throughout 2020 and 2021. And so I'm not, I'm not mad at anybody. Like everybody was trying to make the best decision they could. Everybody wanted to get back to work. I wanted to get back to work, but you know, that there's not a conversation that can be had there. It's just, no, this stance is inconvenient to making money. So that's that. And I understand, like we talked about the role of the drummer. I understand the role on the hierarchy of being in a band of where the drummer is. Like you said, you know, there's the musicians and then there's the drummer that hangs out with them. Right. So nobody, nobody cancels shows because the drummer can't make it. The drummer has to suck it up and go play. You know, I've walked on stage so sick that my knees were buckling as I'm getting up on the drum set before, like you still have to play that show. You, they'll cancel the show because the singer doesn't feel good or they lost their voice or, you know, they, you know, but so, and it was the same with the vaccine mandates. You know, I know of plenty of bands where, uh, had unvaccinated band members found a way to make it work um and you know people with medical exemptions and stuff but the for the majority of them they were making it work for the vocalist for you know the singer people will bend over backwards for the drummer you're you, you know if you're going to throw a wrench into things we're not going to spend a lot of time there you're pretty much replaceable and and you know but it's shocking when when it turns that quickly because you're like, oh wait, I I we were all thought we were all family here, and it's it's just kind of like, well, you're. And for my band, I think they were shocked that I said no. Like I'm, I've never said no to anything, you know, for 14 years there. I, any anything that came up, you know, I, yep, I'll be there. Yep, I can do that. Yep, okay, fine, you know. But this one was just like, no, I can't, I can't say yes to this, and you know. But it was shocking to be like okay, the first time I said no, you know, the next day I was gone, like erased. And that was that. So that, that was the hardest part for me. And and my family was just like, you know, we, we had a lot of, a lot of good years together, a lot of good times together. Our families were all close and then we were, and then we were gone overnight. So that was, that was brutal. You know, I mean, the, the career stuff, obviously, yeah. Like, am I ever going to work again? Am I going to play drums again? Is anyone going to but going to work with me again, but to, you know, to have to explain to my kids, like, Hey, I guess we're never going to see these people again. You know, my youngest daughter was born right when I joined the band. So she had known that band her whole life, you know? So it was like, and you spend when you're in a touring band like that, you spend as much time with that band, sometimes more time with them than your real family in a given year. And so, you know, to, to put that many years in, and then turn around and be like, oh, okay, this is how it actually was. I was just so, you know, easygoing that, you know, everyone loves you as long as you're doing what they want. Mm-hmm. So yeah, then you, you guys haven't spoken yeah. again. No, no, and I, I don't, I'm not expecting that we will. And, you know, I'm, I don't spend a lot of time worrying about what they're doing. I'm sure they don't spend a lot of time worrying about what I'm doing. Like for me, it's, it's just a distraction from what I'm working on and what I want to accomplish. And, you know, there's nothing to be gleaned from living in that or living and dying by what, what they're doing today. You know, it's just, it's none of my business and, you know, there's, there's nothing good for me to spend any time there. Did you have some really great moments? I had great times. I mean, like I said, up until everything came to a screeching halt 
we were fine. Uh, you know, I mean, we had those guys are so much fun to be on tour with. I mean, they kept the same crew around forever. Like there was crew members there that were there longer than me because there's such a good time. There were such a good, you know, people to be around. It was so much fun. And we would do fun stuff on stage to try to, you know, keep things lively. Like, you know, I had a, I had a running joke with the guitar player for a couple of years where, you know, in the song, uh, why don't you get a job? on the record coming out of the bridge back to the third verse, he says something like, you know, let me tell you about my other friend now or something. So I would write a new line for him to say there every night. And the, the deal was um, whatever I wrote down and I would go out on stage and tape it on the floor next to his pedal board, whatever I wrote, he, he had to say, uh, you know, a lot of times it was just a dumb quote from the movie we watched on the bus the night before, or, you know, something completely silly that somebody said backstage, but, the best one for me was um, we were playing in Orlando, Florida, and it was the night after the Los Angeles Lakers beat the Orlando Magic in the NBA Finals. And I made him congratulate the world champion Los Angeles Lakers in front of the Orlando crowd. And it was it was like I was dying. It was so funny because, you know, bless his heart, he said it. <laughs> and uh, and so there was uh, tons of fun. And I, I don't I don't have anything bad to say like like i said i'm disappointed on how things ended but no we had a great time pete there is a meta conversation here though what has happened to rock music i mean it's become very much about raging for the machine i think i think everybody's afraid right now of you know i mean cancel culture is a real thing I, i lived through it like you know it it comes for you fast and hard and it tries to bully you into backing down or accepting it and you know what i learned is like oh you're not if you don't accept it if you don't agree to their terms it doesn't matter just keep go about your business you know the mob will move on to somebody else because we wake up every day waiting to be outraged so i i think it's a combination of of cancel culture and a fear of the outrage culture that has kind of has artists self-censoring even at the writing stage like well i don't i don't want to I don't want to say anything too strong about this because I'll upset half my audience or I don't want to come out too strong here or these people are going to get mad. And I think it creates a, a scenario in rock music, especially where you're listening to a song and you're going, I don't even know what this is about. Like we're, we're raging against something, but it's kind of nondescript. And, you know, so I think there's a lot of that artistry where you're writing a song and leaving it bland enough that any audience member can make it about whatever they need it to be that day. And I, you know, I, I don't entirely discount the value in that. It's like, okay, cool. Yeah. That song really means this to me. And it might not be anything that the artist meant, but that means that to you. Good. Glad that it was helpful. But I think it's creating an art, an environment where nobody has anything to say anymore or yeah. they're afraid to say it. And so like, that was what rock and roll was supposed to be about. Like, counterculture like sticking it to the man coming out against the government you know instead of instead of this weird thing where it's like well if you don't get on board with this you are an awful person you don't want to be an awful person right you want to stay in the good person club so make sure that you're on board with this make sure and Mm -hmm. oh by the way you got on board with that well here's your next one and here's your next one and there's just a a list of things that you have to keep up on so i think if we're all you know what what's crushing creativity in rock and roll is is the rise of virtue signaling you know it's like well we need to 
get out there and and you know get out in front of this new thing it's like chasing trends all the time and in, instead of like going well this is i'm going to hunker down and search my own feelings about this and write this album about something important to me or something that i think people should hear and i think a lot of people are afraid to do that now you know i think that's why pop music got so big over the last decade or more was just like everybody's like well look i can write this song about absolutely nothing but it's super catchy and it's got that hook or that little line in it and everyone wants to hear it over and over and now we can just turn our brains off and dance and you know again not not discounting the value of that but it's i don't think it's pushing the art form forward um but it's you know it's making people a lot of money so but that's why i said at the beginning of our conversation that punk rock was was more about uh, sorry it was less about the music and more about the entire philosophy the attitude it was about a message yeah yeah i mean there used to be a message you know it used to be pretty clear fuck the government you know, mm. stick it to the man. Well, now, know, stand up for your rights. Yeah. Now it's not sticking it to the man; it's sticking it in your arm. Right? Yeah. Went from stick it to the man to the man to stick it in your arm. Yeah. There's, it's baffling, and you know, and like I said, I hear from a lot of people privately that are you know big big artists that are like, hey man, really really admire what you did, and wish I could speak up, but you know, and, and I get it, like taking a stand here isn't for everybody like it costs you a lot it can cost you everything and so people are genuinely afraid of that and i I understand that but but yeah you're kind of like talking to these people like well if you said something it would mean way more than what i said like you know i'm a drummer from this band who gives a shit but you know someone with a larger platform you know but I'll take anyone like, you know, we all, we all stand together on this. It, and if everybody stood up at once, it would have been, it would be over. We'd be in a different landscape, but everybody got swept up in the fear of it. And then after the fear, it was now it's the social fear of like, well, you don't want to look like one of the bad people. You don't want to be pegged on the bad team. And it's like, all right, well now we're all just performing goodness to be, either left alone or allowed to get back to work and it's like well when did we all need permission to create art when did we need permission to to make music like it just it seems so backwards and Mm -hmm. like fear is a crazy crazy thing like what it what it can do to people and especially when it's i'd never seen something like that like a propaganda campaign rolled out at the same time around the world everywhere it was nuts um so yeah it's it's hard to to look at the state of of music and the state of rock and roll and art and be like you know are we are we going to come back from this you know and i get that everybody just wanted to get back to work i understand i wanted to get back to work you know but then you know i hear stories from people my friends who are on tours one of my friends was on a tour and the they were having so much trouble with covid but they didn't want to cancel shows they tried to ask everyone on the bus to sleep in an N95 mask in their bunk. Like ridiculous and dangerous. And thankfully everybody on that bus pushed back and said, we're absolutely not going to do that. But like the fact that that was even floated out there, like you're going to sleep and and deprive yourself of oxygen. Like we don't even know what that's doing to people, but it was so much more important that the money kept flowing 
we don't give a shit what happens to you or what, you know, we're not giving any thought to the repercussions of sleeping in a tight fitted N95 mask. We just want to keep making money. And so to me, that was, that was the hardest part was like, okay, well, everyone's out there virtue signaling, like out of abundance of caution, we're requiring this for the show or we're requiring that for that show. And it's like, no, you're just covering your ass to be able to to justify going back and making money. Like we, mm. that was the weird, the weird thing to see was, well, we've swept, we've swept everybody up into fear and told them not to leave their homes. Now we would like to reverse that, but we don't know how. So now it's like, well, you can leave your home if you bring your piece of paper and you put a mask on and, you know, then you can come back and enjoy things again. But, you know, for, you know, behind the scenes, you know, you're asking people to sleep with masks on, or, you know, you're, you're telling another huge tour had people broken up into small bubbles of like, you, you know, the different bands on the tour couldn't interact together. And within your own band, you could only interact with these people and the crew people could only interact with the people on their side of the stage. And I'm like, it's the average person doesn't understand how hard it already is to be on the road. Like, you know, yeah, it's fun. Yeah, it's great. You're playing shows and stuff, but it's, it's tough. Like, it's not just a nonstop party. And so now you're isolating people even more like, oh, don't sit in catering and eat at the arena show. Take your plate of food and go sit somewhere by yourself. Like, now we're isolating people even more. So for, for a industry that already creates some of the worst drug and alcohol habits that there are, to now go and isolate people even more. Like it, it's crazy. It's crazy. And, but everybody went along with it. Cause it's like, no, we got to get back to work. And this is the only way it's the only way it's just a bizarre time. But there is a silver lining and that is look at the new type of networks that have been created as a result. Yeah. I mean, I'm really, what, what excites me is seeing the, like the new counterculture system of people working out outside of the system, you know, like, you know, I work with Tim pool. We've been making music together for a year and a half now and, you know, it putting it out in a way that's bypassing the gatekeepers of the music industry, which pisses the gatekeepers off to no end, you know, but we'll put a song out and it'll go to like number one on iTunes sales because his audience is rabid and they're supportive and they understand like, Hey, you, pay for the culture that you want. Stop giving your money to people that don't give a shit about you. So we can make an impact putting a song out. And then, you know, you go to try to, to find someone that wants to, a journalist that wants to do a story about it. And they're basically like, no, fuck you. Not those people, not this way. They're not doing it the right way. And it's like any other band that came out of nowhere and had the number one song on iTunes in front of uh, Taylor Swift, like, there's a story there, but there's no story there because you guys are outside of the mainstream. You guys are doing it wrong. So, you know, so I'm, I'm emboldened by people like Tim trying to create a space where we can make our, we're not waiting to ask permission. You know, I'm a big fan of that, of like, no, do your own thing. You don't need somebody's permission to create. You don't need somebody's permission to exist. Like go and do your thing, find your people, find your audience. You know, I have a new band, that I've been working with for a year now, or uh, just finished our record that's coming out later this year called The Defiant. And it's uh, it's myself, it's Dickie Barrett from the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, it's Greg Camp from Smash Mouth, it's Johnny Rio from the Street Dogs, and Joey LaRocca from the Briggs. And, um, yes, that's you know, the lineup? again, like, that's the lineup, right? That's a great and lineup. so it's a great lineup, and it's exciting 
you know, I, I saw somebody online was like, don't super groups usually disappoint? And it's like, yeah, but, you know, they usually don't have songs. But, you know, when you bring the you bring the songwriters, then you, you've got you've got the you got the goods. So, you know, for me to be working with with those guys, because Dickie went through a very similar situation as me. You know, he was in the Boston's. He was the announcer on Jimmy Kimmel from the beginning and, um, you know, lost his gig over the vaccine mandates. And it's just, you know, so. When he found me, like he had seen my story, I had seen his, and he was just kind of like, hey, I think we should work together, you know, and you know these other guys, I think we should work with everybody. I think it'll be cool. It, it, it's been amazing. Like it's really brought back my love of being creative, like my drumming on this record, I'm super excited about. I got to cut all the drums here at my own studio. We did all of Dickie's vocals here. It's, it's really exciting to be creating outside of any any pressure from, you know, the mainstream industry of like, well, you can't sing about that, or you can't play the song that way, or that shouldn't be there. It's just kind of like, no, we're just going to do what we want. And, um, you know, if we're enjoying it, then it'll hopefully translate to the audience enjoying it. So I am hopeful that things are, are taking a turn of people, you know, kind of waking up and going, oh, all right, the last three years, that was, that was weird. Like that was, that was fucked up. And I, I'm thankfully getting a lot more messages like that of like, Hey, I was really shitty to you or felt really like you were an asshole when, when you put your statement out or when this started and now I've really changed my view and they have questions or people be like, I kind of regret getting this, you know, I, I don't know what's going on. And that like the propaganda was really intense. And so I, I think more and more people are having questions about what happened. I just think there needs to be more atonement from the top down, some yeah. acknowledgement of yeah, we made mistakes. Yeah, those lockdowns were too much. Yeah, forcing this on people was wrong. Mandating it and saying that it, that you know everyone needs to get it was wrong. And I feel like right now we're in a precarious spot because those people seem to want to go, well, you know, it was crazy times and we, you know, we did the best we could, but let's all move on. And it's like, no, we can't just move on because if there's no acknowledgement from the top down, then the people at the top are just going to do the same thing again. You know, when something like this crops up, I'm hopeful that more of the population at large will be able to see it earlier and go, no, no, I'm not going to close my business while Walmart stays open. No, I'm not going to, you know, that didn't work. That We're not going to take kids out of school. We're not going to, you know, keep people from their families. Like it's, it's crazy that, and that, the, that we still have a travel mandate into the U.S. for, you know, foreign travelers who are unvaccinated, you know, it's, it's, it's not so we can say, Oh, that, you know, the pandemic's over, everything's fine, but we're still going to leave this there just to be petty and shitty. Like it, it, I don't know. It just doesn't make us look like the, the beacon of freedom that we, we love to, to put ourselves out there as, as a nation. Do you have a favorite offspring song? Yeah. Um, I always loved, um, well, I liked the wild card songs that didn't show up as much. Like, uh, playing come out and play every night. That was always great because, you know, as soon as I started the little, you know, clicky drum beat thing, everybody was going nuts. It was fun. And we usually got that one out pretty early in the set and oh, it was would, a nice lift. You but, would play that on the, on the actual metal on the, on the, on the stand. Yeah. On the, I would play it on the, on the rim of the rack Tom mm. because you can't hear it on the hi-hat stand live or like and right. it just always felt really awkward for me to do that there and nobody had a problem with me playing it up there so that's just kind of what i did um but i liked songs like uh, lightning rod off a of splinter that that was every time we played that which was 
maybe twice a year. I love that song. So I that that would get me pumped up when that came up. And there was a song on Days Go By called um, uh, Slim Pickens uh, Does the Right Thing and Rides the Bomb to Hell. It was the last song in that record. So every time we played that, I really, really enjoyed that song and, you know, would swing extra hard for the fences, like hitting myself in the back with the sticks, like, you know, that. So those those were my favorite songs, you know. Um, but I, I tried to find something like you always have to find your way in to a song or to a performance or whatever. So with each song, you got to find a spot. And I, I tried to make sure there was something in each song that would make me smile or I'd get excited about, you know, so that I always would be, even if I had the worst day ever, I'm up on stage. I don't want that to translate into the song or into my performance because I don't want to ruin somebody's experience. You know, that's, that's the other thing as an artist, you have, you have an obligation regardless of how shitty your day went. Mm. You know, I don't understand people that get up on stage and take that with them and are antagonistic to the crowd or put on a shitty show or walk off halfway through the set because everything's not perfect. It's just like, it might sound like complete garbage to you on stage, but that doesn't sound like that out front and you don't need to be angry about it. Like that's not making anybody get their money's worth. So to me, find a way in to be excited even if you're playing that song for the millionth time you know somebody's seeing it for the first time and they deserve to get get your best and and i i think that's what every artist strives to to do um i would hope where do you see music going with the advent of ai man i there's a lot of discussions about that uh, lately and you know for me yeah, you can, you can tell AI, look, I've got a, a country song. I would like it to mention these specific words. It's going to, you know, and, and here's the line in the chorus and it'll write you a song. I mean, lyrically, it'll write you a poem. Right. And I'm, I haven't spent a lot of time with it. I'm assuming it can write you a whole song if you're showing it enough information. But my question is, where is the, like the ingenuity of the human mind like the, you know, you can, you can feed it three screenplays and say, write me a movie based on these three films and it'll spit it out. But will it have like that spark of inspiration in the third act of like, oh, this thing that no one saw coming, like, will there still, it, will it be able to replace human innovation? And, you know, I'm, I hope we never find out, like, I'm, I'm a little, I'm curious and worried of how fast this is developing and, you know, can the brakes be pumped? Are we heading to the Terminator? You know, it's, it's kind of scary when you're, you're like, all right, well, who's in charge of this? And, uh, but yeah, creatively, I don't know. I really hope that, that you can't replace what people do. And I hope that we never get to a place where, where that's, we'd rather have our entertainment written by a robot than the human heart and the like com from a place of compassion and like, I got to tell this story because it means this to me, or, you know, I got to write this song because I've got something to say rather than, you know, telling a computer, write me a hit song. I need it to sound like this. And they go, ah, here you go. You know, I, I hope that we never get an appetite for that over, over humanity. Um, and, you know, even bigger than our art, I hope that we never lose our appetite for humanity with each other and, and, you know, I'm hopeful that, that we're going to come out of this 
last couple of years in a better place. Um, I just, I would wish that we could all talk to each other in person more than, than just screaming at each other online. Pete, how can I follow you? Oh yeah. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram, just at Pete Parada. Uh, I'm not on Facebook. Um, and you can find my new band, The Defiant, um, on Instagram at The Defiant Official and Twitter uh, at The Defiant USA or uh, TheDefiantOfficial.com. You can sign up for a mailing list, keep track of when we got some merch coming. We've got some hats and things on the way. Um, and uh, you can find me at my website, uh, just PeteParada.com. You can hear samples of drum tracks I've done at my studio here, some music that I've written. And uh, hit me up if you need drum tracks or producing, or um, you can also find me on splice.com. I have a, a sound pack of loops and samples created here at my, my studio, my instruments of all different punk rock beats and feels and tempos and fills. So you can, if you're looking to make some music, you can put, get all the pieces there and, uh, you know, make your songs with me on drums. Uh, it's, it's a really cool feature that they have there. And, and uh, so there's, plenty to choose from, you know, build your song based on some of it's based on real songs. Some of it's just based on, uh, feels of that era, the early 2000s punk rock, you know, late nineties of that style and that feel. Um, so yeah, that's, that's where you can find me. Pete Barada, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. It was fun. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com 